Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Today's sermon is about life is not fair. That's it. That's the whole sermon. Half of your faces tells me my mom already told me that my entire life. The other half of your faces is telling me life has taught me that all of my life. So hello, my name is Jeff. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at City Church, and apparently my job this morning is to teach you guys a parable about how life is not fair. That's the big idea. And life isn't fair, and I'm not going to lie. I, I honestly resonate with this idea on a soul level, but in a torturous way. If life is fair, celery will be 600 calories, and a donut will be 25. And I won't be standing in front of you today as a plump Asian man. <laughs> life isn't fair. But more seriously, if life is fair, you would be the one that gets that promotion at work instead of that boob who slacks off and never pays attention. If life is fair, you would be the one that's currently now married or have kids instead of the friend that's in your life who is consistently complaining about their marriage, their spouse, and their kids. Life is not fair. Fair. And frankly, when we look at this parable, we're actually going to, even, we're going to realize even the concept of fair is not fair. So let's dive into our passage today. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. If you're joining us for the first time today, we're in our multi-year study of the book of Matthew. Last week, we looked at the interaction between a rich young man who was pretty prominent in his day and Jesus so think Harry Styles. For those of us a little bit more seasoned, maybe think Steven Tyler, Aerosmith from the 80s. So Harry Styles rolls up to Jesus and asks him, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus told him, you must give up everything, your riches, your influence, all your colorful yet weirdly empowering wardrobe, everything. Give up all those and follow after me. And the parable ended with him walking away sad from Jesus. And honestly, it's a heartbreaking interaction. But the reality is we either walk away from the things that we love or things that we think we cannot live without on this, on this earth, or we walk away from Jesus. That's the decision before each and every one of us. We all have to walk away from something. So it is after this interaction we pick up our passage for today in verse 27. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? 
I love Peter so much. It dawned on Peter in this very moment that the rich young ruler was not able to do what Jesus asked of him. Peter connected all the dots and realized that's what each and every one of the disciples did. Jesus went, Jesus, we did the thing. We did the thing that Harry Styles could not do. We left everything behind, our lives, our families, our livelihood, to follow you. What is our reward? What's in it for us? It's almost like Peter is like, he found himself on like a prices right show and he's like, tell me what I won. Peter contrasts the disciples' sacrifice with the rich young ruler's lack of sacrifice and wants to make sure they get credit and recognition that they're due. And Jesus responds to Peter in verse 28. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, at the renew of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit the eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So Jesus responds to Peter, there will be rewards. In fact, rewards far beyond what you can imagine. Everything that you do now will be rewarded in heaven. Nothing is done in vain. So first, Jesus sets Peter's mind at ease by saying the disciples will indeed be rewarded for their sacrifice and obedience to Jesus. But in Peter's question, Jesus detects an attitude, a posture that must be addressed. So he's about to do that in a form of a parable. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Jesus continues on. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So Jesus is teaching to a group of people who exist in a hand-to-mouth society. I mean, this society does not have much any form of savings. Not, not any investments. To all my people who have ever dumpster dive or college students, you know exactly what this feels like. In a society like this, unemployment meant starvation. So people would gather in the town squares every morning at around 6 a.m. hoping they would get hired to work that day just so they can eat and provide for their family. So the story starts with a landowner, spoiler, who represents God in this parable, going out to hire workers who work in his vineyard. And he agreed to pay them each a denarius. And denarius is a pretty standard pay for full days of work in this society. It's just enough to feed you and your family, which, by the way, a full workday is from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So think about it from the perspective of the people that just got hired. In a society where you you don't work, you starve, and you just got hired for the day. And you're getting paid the wage you need to survive. I would imagine there's a sense of gratitude, a sense of relief. At least for today, you're going to be provided for. Let's keep going, verse 3. About 9 in the morning, he went out and saw others in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go, go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So three hours later, the landowner goes out again and hires more people. But pay attention to what he says to this group because it's different than the first. He said, I will pay you whatever is right. 
instead of a denarius. Remember that because we're going to come back to this later. Let's keep going. Verse 5. So they went. He went out again about noon and then about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked him, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Okay, two things to note here. Typically, the people who are not hired in this society are people who are weak, sick, disabled, elderly, or other targets of discrimination like criminals or anyone with a bad reputation. In other words, the unwanted, the undesirable, the rejected in the society. And notice the landowner goes to them and hires them. We don't really have time to dive deeply into this today, but this is actually Jesus saying here that the kingdom of God is available to everyone. He desires everyone to be a part of it. Even if they've been rejected by the society that they're in, he's saying, come, be a part of my kingdom. So if you're in this room today, you find yourself, know that the Spirit of God is actually moving to tell you, come and be a part of this, that his kingdom, there's room for you even if the world does not. The second thing to note is, think about the people who were first hired in the morning, the first crew. As they work throughout the day, they see more and more, more, and more people coming to help. It means the work that they need to do becomes less because they have more help. And I would imagine there's not only this gratitude, like we said earlier, that this job means that they, them and their family are, themselves are taken care of today, but this job is now becoming even easier. I would imagine there's this swell of gratitude in them as the day progress. The day started with them unsure about whether or not they're going to avoid starvation, to now the day has progressed to, it's a day filled with uh, the appropriate payment that they need, and they also get lots of help. In verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received the denarius. So it's pay time. Jesus pays the last people hired first. So they only worked one hour, but they were paid a full denarius. People hearing this story in this moment, they're going to be thinking, I'm trying to work for this guy. For one hour's of work, I get a full day's of payment? That's amazing. And the thing about the people that were hired in the beginning of the day, they're thinking, I'm about to get rich. I should be getting paid 12 denarius based on what this man is paying. That's exactly what they're thinking. Verse 10. So when those who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of work and the heat of the day. Uh-oh. So instead of 12 denarius, they only got one, and they began to complain. They see the people only working one hour, getting the same amount of pay they had, and honestly, had the first workers who got paid, uh, the first hired workers who got paid first before anyone else, they probably would have just gone their merry way with, honestly, smiles on their faces, gladness in their heart, and just go along. But because they saw what the later hired workers were paid. They saw this as an unfair treatment, this unbalance of pay, this 
sense of entitlement swells up in them. They think they should be paid more. They work harder and longer than these later hired workers. They should be compensated more. They felt the landowner owed them. And frankly, as we're reading up to this point, it is unfair, right? I mean, can we not all agree with that? Like, the two people who work very different amount of hours should mean two very different amounts of payment. However, the purpose of this parable is Jesus, uh, that Jesus is telling is not actually about employment or salary rate. The parable that Jesus is trying to use here is to show us about who God is and how his kingdom works. Jesus is trying to show that the God we serve is a God who is about more than just being fair, that he's also about being incredibly generous. And sometimes we let envy and comparison rob us of that view of his radical generosity. Sometimes, like the disciples, we're completely content with the life God gives us until he gives someone else a life that we happen to like better. How many of us here have prayed hard for God to give us a job? And he does. And we're so thankful for it. But then before long, we notice other people have jobs that we happen to like a little bit better. The job seems a little bit more flexible. The job seems a little bit uh, better pay than us, or the co-workers seem a lot more fun than ours. And all of a sudden, we don't like our jobs anymore. We're not thankful for it at all. In fact, we feel God is being unfair to us because here, all, all these other people with fun and more exciting jobs, I'm over here with a normal, boring job. Or when God gives you that spouse that you have longed for and prayed for, and he does. And as you go on, you see other people's marriages and relationships, their picture-perfect marriage on Instagram, their semi-perfect, well-put-together homes when you go over for dinner, and you become bitter about the state of your marriage and your family that God has given you. When you're in a season of loneliness and you beg God for meaningful relationships who actually care about you and want to befriend you, and God faithfully answers your prayer and brings people into your life for those meaningful relationships. Then after a while, you see other relationships and seem, that seem more fun, more adventurous, more spontaneous, more meaningful, and now you feel what you have is lacking. It's shallow in comparison. You become disillusioned to what God has given you. It's amazing how comparison can erode something that once was good and turn into something that is now lacking, to something we complain about. So when the first hired group of workers saw the people hired after them getting paid exactly the same as them, this comparison leads them to envy and entitlement and complaints to the landowner, who once was someone that provided for what they needed, but now has become someone who owes them. The landowner went from being fair to now unfair. And I can relate to this. Uh, a while back, we were given this very building that all of us are sitting in. And honestly, our staff was ecstatic. I don't know if you know this. It's not common for a church plan given a building. Kind of like in the same way, it's not common for you to just get a free house. That's just not a thing that happens. And not just a building, a building in an area that's growing, a building in an area that is in need of the gospel. So, some of you guys may know, we, um, we're a church that's been sent out by 
another church, where church plant sent out by a church in South Carolina. So when we got this amazing news, we called them and told them all this. Yeah, we got this new building. It's in this area. We're really excited. But instead, we were met with, oh, of course, you guys got a free building. Church plant is just so easy for you guys. City Church just gets everything right. And honestly, it was just a whole lot of blah, blah, blah. I kind of started tuning it out. You know, all I hear is I'm too jealous. I'm going to use humor to kind of compensate for my insecurities. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what they said. <laughs> I was so frustrated by this interaction because they couldn't celebrate the good that was happening here in Knoxville. But instead, they were bitter because all they can see is it didn't happen to them. It was like the comparison robbed all the gratitude they could have had. It was baffling to me. Now, we could have responded with beautiful gospel truths in this moment. But instead, we reply back, hashtag blessed. <laughs> hashtag sorry, not sorry. Hashtag Jesus loves us more. So no, we didn't respond well. But it was just so frustrating to see that was their response. They could not see the good that's happening here in Knoxville, but they only see what they did not get in South Carolina. So a few months later, my buddy Chet, who is also a church planner, called me and said, they too are getting a free building. And we were excited. We're going, oh, I know exactly how this feels. I love it. Congrats, you guys. Then he showed me the pictures of this new building. And it was really awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's not quite as 1970s as ours. <laughs> then, then not only they got a free building, they also were given a bank account that had $350,000. I'm not going to lie. I was mad. <laughs> like, I was big mad because our building came with negative $75,000 because we had to put in a HVAC just so we can like survive in the summer heat. And then we had to spend oodles of money just so we can have toilets in this building. Hashtag no longer blessed. <laughs> Hashtag Jesus loves me no more. It's amazing how comparison can steal gratitude right from under your feet. It can take you from a place of gratitude and joy to, where, to a place where you're convinced that God is holding out on you. My point is that we're incredibly good at taking the generosity of God towards others and use it as ammunition to begrudge God's generosity towards us. We love to compare our lot in life to other people's lot, concluding that God must not love us, must not care about us. And sometimes the only thing that's happened to make us believe that God is, that God is doing that, it's only because he has a different kind of generosity to someone else. And that's the dynamic of what this passage is about. Let's keep going, verse 13. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who 
was hired last, the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The landowner pushes back on the accusation. He says, I am not being unfair to you. We agreed to this is what was going to be your pay. We agree I am providing for you and your family fairly. Why do you think you have the right to tell me what to do with my money? Are you envious just because I was a different kind of generous to the other workers? And it is this point that God exposes what is really going on, that this whole sense of this is uh, not fair, God, you're not being fair, is actually triggered by envy and entitlement. They were completely content with their pay until they saw someone else who got more. And the only thing that changed is that they started comparing themselves to others. In fact, it is actually the workers who are being unfair. The landowners say, hey, we made an agreement. You're the one who is being unfair for expecting more. This is about the workers being envious when they, say, when they saw how the landowner treated the other workers. From their perspective, the other workers should get less than what they received. But God's action here are not primarily driven by fairness. They're driven by generosity. Remember, this is a hand-to-mouth society. So if you don't work, you starve. And recall earlier that landowner told the later hired workers that he will pay them whatever is right. The landowner sees the worker who were hired last, even if they only worked one hour, they still need a full day's wage to survive. They still need a full day's wage to feed their families. This parable illustrates not God's withholding for what was deserved, but God gave much more than what was owed. This parable is not about God being unfair, but instead God is unreasonably generous and righteous. I've heard it said, God is never less than fair, but sometimes he is more than fair. The parable exposes the first group of workers' desire for fairness is actually unfair. And the desire for fairness is the belief that other workers should not get paid same as them. They should get paid less because they didn't work as long or as hard. The first group of workers only saw the situation in terms of what they each received or not received. The desire for fairness is actually callous towards the later group of hired workers. Envy entitlement can make you uncaring and failure to see what others are lacking and what others may need because you only look to yourself to what you are owed and what you are lacking. Envy entitlement can turn a good and generous God into a God who is withholding joy from you a stingy God who is indebted to you, who owes you, and failure to recognize that God is actually also providing for others in need. Entitlement and envy can rob joy from you, from your life. It's like a thief that comes to take and destroy. It turns God from being a good, generous dad in your life to an unfair and unreasonable boss. It leads you down this path where you can acknowledge Jesus who gave up everything, his life, suffered tremendous amount of pain and suffering and death, that same Jesus you now see as absent. 
You now see this Jesus as someone who does not care about you, does not want good or joy for you in this life, a God who withholds good from you, even though he suffered so much to make you his. That's how powerful envy and entitlement can be, lead you to a point where the grace of God, the sacrifice of Jesus, no longer holds much weight and meaning in your life. The Bible tells us the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and so often he does that through envy and comparison. He loves when we compare our situation in life to everyone else's because it's such an easy thing to do. And because I'll just tell you this, there will always be someone who has, who has it better than us. There will always be someone who has it better than us. There's always opportunity for envy and comparison. Envy and comparison screams, you deserve more, you need more. It's like an enslaving master that tells you over and over again, life is not fair, you work too hard, you care too much to only have what you have. You deserve more. Envy and entitlement blinds, to, blinds you to what you already have. and fixes all your focus and attention on things you do not have. It's a cruel master because it's a master that tells you you need more and you don't have enough and that there will always be more. The desire for more can never be satisfied. But God is a much better master. He says, I'll give you more than you deserve. You see, when I teach this parable, most people identify with the workers that were hired first, who, the workers who worked a full 12-hour day. Very few people see themselves as the workers who were hired last. And even when we interpret this parable, we inherently assume that we're the ones that's being treated unfairly. None of us go, wow, the landowner gave me a job when he didn't have to? That's awesome. But that's exactly who we are. That's actually the point of this parable, that God is the good landowner who gives us, the last hired workers, more than we deserve. The God we serve is actually a God who is radically generous, who is above than just being fair, who provides for what we need even though we do not deserve it. In fact, the only thing unfair about our relationship with God is that God is incredibly unfair to himself. Let me show you what I mean. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the perfect son of God, came to planet earth on a rescue mission who walked this earth perfectly, loved everyone perfectly, including his enemies, including the people that were actively killing him. He loved them perfectly to the point that he prayed for them as they were murdering him as he hung on the cross. Jesus did nothing wrong. He did everything right, and what he received was a torturous death. That is unfair. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We're the ones that benefit from all the work that Jesus put in. We receive the payment of Jesus' perfect obedience. We received all of it because we have a God who is incredibly generous. He gets what is unfair. We get grace. But maybe for some of us here today, 
as we listen to all this, and you still get this voice within you, yeah, but my, my life really is unfair. The injustice I've experienced, the pain and sorrows I have faced, all these experiences broken me down to my bones. And you're telling me God is generous? That God is good after everything I have gone through? And there was a time in my life that was actually how I related to God, that I, I could not approach him because of just too much pain. In that season, I have a friend, his name is Alan. He's one of the pastors from Ascending Church. And honestly, Alan helped me understand what it looks like to follow Jesus well and what it looks like to serve as a pastor. I would not be here today unless God had worked through my friend, Alan. He's a dear friend and I have a front row seat into his life. I've seen the joy in, of him and his wife, Courtney, experience when they found out they were pregnant after trying for so many years. I've seen their excitement mixed in with fear when they found out they were pregnant with six kiddos. I watched them weep when they lost all six. I watched Alan deal with confusion and pain and anger as he buried his children. I was there when Alan and Corny became parents and had two more girls, and I saw one, what wonderful parents they become. I was there when they got the devastating news that one of their daughters has stage four kidney cancer. I was with them on our knees begging God for a miracle. I was there when they found out they were pregnant again but only to find out that the baby was not going to be viable when the baby is born. I remember thinking, are you kidding me, God? How can you be this cruel, this unfair to someone who is trying to love you and serve your church? This is how you treat him? you got to be kidding me. And isn't that season, it finally clicked for me that God never promised us a life without suffering. And it was an incredibly painful realization. The fact that Jesus said suffering will come for all of us because of the brokenness in this world. I was trying so hard to hold on to a promise that God has never promised a life without suffering, and I forgot the beautiful promises he actually made. I forgot that he promised us that he will always be with us, no matter what, no matter how painful this life can be, he will be there. That he will never leave us. Nothing will ever separate us from his love. If he did not abandon us in the most tremendous pain he was suffering on the cross, he's not going to abandon you in your pain. He will never leave, and he will never abandon you. You have never wept alone in this life. You have never hurt alone in this life. Those dark nights when you feel all your strength has left you because pain and suffering that you're facing has broken you down to dust, he was right there, with you, weeping and grieving. But more importantly, 
The certainty of life with him forever is coming. An eternity with him is coming. Do you guys know that? We're not, we're not believing in a fairy tale that heaven is real and is coming. Revelation 21 says, there will be a day where Jesus sees and looks at you face to face and he will wipe every tear from your face and he will declare there will be no more pain, no more death, no more suffering. The tears that you have shed on those dark, lonely nights, he will say to you, I was there with you and now I'm saying you will never have to shed those tears again because I'm making all things new. The old is gone. You no longer have to experience any more of this brokenness. That's the promise God has for us, that a day will come where everything sad will become untrue. So the question is, is that enough? Is God's offer of grace and his promise to make all things new enough? To put it another way, are we judging God's faithfulness to us on the basis of him being true to his promises? Or are we judging God's faithfulness to us by comparing what he's done in other people's lives? Some of us might be thinking, but my life is still unfair. Why doesn't God bring heaven now? Why doesn't he end the pain and suffering now? I want us to point back to the parable. It's his desire to get as many workers in his vineyard as possible, even the undesired, even the ones that have been rejected by this world. He wants them to be part of his kingdom. All because he is loving and generous. Not because he wants you to suffer longer, it's because he sees those and does not have what you have already and eternity with them. And that's what he desires for them. So he's going out to pursue them and invite them into his kingdom. But going back to the beginning of our passage today, Peter asks Jesus, I did all these things to follow you. What do I get? After witnessing the rich young ruler ask what he needs to get in eternal life and seeing Jesus' answer, Peter went on to say, I did all those things. What else do I get besides eternal life? Jesus thought, Peter thought that life was about what more he could receive. But Jesus responded with a parable that's actually not about payment and reward, but, about a, but a parable about God's generosity. Because life is about how incredibly God is generous towards us already, not about what more we can get. Life is about understanding that we have a good, good Father who loves us and he is good it will go far beyond what any of us would imagine to, to pursue after us. So if your focus in life is about what you can get and compare it to what others, God, you will miss out on seeing God as a generous, good father like the workers did in the parable. You see, the way it works in the kingdom of God is God gives us more than we deserve, and it makes no sense, but it is right. In God's kingdom, he leaves the 99 for the one who wandered off. The payment of one-hour work is the same as the one who worked 12 hours. The offering of pennies from a widow is worth more than the thousands from the rich. It is the least of these who will enter the kingdom of God. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Kingdom math doesn't always make sense. In fact, a lot of times it doesn't. But the more you embrace that, the more joy 
to be found in him and in your life. You will see gratitude everywhere in your life. But if you believe the kingdom of God is supposed to be, we work and receive the blessings and payments based on the work we put in, that's actually more in line with the Hinduistic teaching of karma. You do good, you receive good. You do bad, you receive bad. That's the belief of karma. But the way of Jesus and how his kingdom works is quite the opposite. You, and if you do not understand or see the difference between those two, you will continuously compare yourself with others and be filled with envy and entitlement. And you'll continuously be frustrated and see life as unfair and God owes you. So what do we do with all this? How do we continually to see the kingdom of God correctly? I got two quick ways for us this morning. And the two are we practice the discipline of gratitude and resist the, the traps of comparison. Practice the discipline of gratitude and resist the traps of comparison. So the first one, practice the discipline of gratitude. How often do you pray a prayer of gratitude to God? Gratitude does not just happen automatically, fam. If anything, the parable shows us we need to swim upstream to, to be able to see the generosity of God. So do you practice the discipline of gratitude? Do you figure out ways and block out times to thank your Heavenly Father for what he has given you? Or does your prayer life primarily surround the things that you ask for, the things that you ask of him? Do you observe your life in a way to see things are given to you instead of the things you lack or do not have? If this is something that you do not have a rhythm of doing in your day-to-day, -day, I would encourage you to try two things. First, start each morning and end each day with a prayer of thankfulness. I love watching my son, Luke, do this every night. He thanks God for the most silly and dumb things. <laughs> He's thankful for his Tiggy, the tiger, his Lunchables, and maybe me and mom make the list. Do you thank God for the silly things in your life? Or do you see everything in your life as earned and taken for granted? Or on the flip side, do you take time to praise God for the cross, for saving you? Or have you forgotten the very best news of your life and the most hopeful thing that you have? Try to start each day with a prayer and end each day with a prayer for thanking God for the big, small, and even silly things. To go along with this, I would encourage you to do, when you find yourself complaining, find two things you're grateful for. This was incredibly convicting for me because I continuously define myself in the last few weeks thanking God for things. It was really good for me. So each time you start feeling envious or entitled, find two things in your life that God has given you. Things that you do not deserve, but it is yours nonetheless just because he's good and he's generous. So that's the first practice. Practice the discipline of gratitude. The second practice is resist the trap of comparison. What are the things in your life that encourage you to compare yourself to others? Notice in the parable, the hired workers were perfectly content with what they agreed upon until they compared the other workers' payment. What things exist in your life that cultivates envy and entitlement for you? Is it Instagram? Is it TikTok? Is it just browsing around a store like Target or Amazon? Do you need to stop watching certain product review videos on YouTube? 
That one's incredibly convicting for me. Because that typically I'm pretty content with the stuff I have, all the shiny tech stuff I have until I watch this video and go, ah, it's not shiny, it's old and busted now. Maybe some of us here need to stop watching certain videos that review cars or techs or different things or houses um, or whatever. But what are the things in your life you can avoid so you can avoid the trap of comparison? Are there certain accounts on social media you need to unfollow? Some influencer that's living an adventurous life that you deeply desire and you do not have? Or that person you know personally that happens just to have a better job or marriage or family than you? Maybe it's relationships. Do you look at other people's relationships and friendships and comparing them to yours? Do you look at what other life groups are doing and then compare that to your life group and become frustrated? And then so trying to make those relationships better in your life group by cultivating them, do you become bitter about what they aren't? So when those comparisons come up in your thoughts, maybe we should let those become moments for the Holy Spirit to convict us and not let those become bitterness. So I want to end our teaching today to give you some space to have an honest conversation with your Heavenly Father. I want to give you space if you feel His Spirit convicting you this morning, if you've been relating to Him not as a good father, but as a stingy boss who owes you. I want to give you space to confess that to your Heavenly Father. I want to give us time to pause and reflect the things in our life, the good things that we're given. Do we see those things as undeserving things God has given us? Or... Do we see them as things that we have earned ourselves? I want to give us space to see we're actually the 11th hour worker that was hired by God, and he is unreasonably generous towards us. I want to give us space to praise God and thank him for his generosity. So here are some prompts for you as you interact with the Holy Spirit. What are the good things in your life or gifts from God that you did not earn? What are things that you don't have, you feel you're you're owed? And how can you celebrate the things God has given other people? Let's pray.